Well, this morning, we're going to turn back to the passage that we have been looking at these last few weeks. We are coming uh, to the end of the first section of chapter 22 of the book of Revelation. And our focus this morning is going to be just on three verses, verses 3, 4, and 5 of Revelation 22. But I want to read the whole chapter to give you the context of the end. Hear now the word of our God. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city. Also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And behold, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of the prophecy of this book. I, John, am the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who showed them to me. But he said to me, you must not do that. I am a fellow servant with you and your brothers, the prophets, and with those who keep the words of this book, worship God. And he said to me, do not seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, for the time is near. Let the evildoer still do evil, the filthy still be filthy, and the righteous still do right, and the holy still be holy. Behold, I am coming soon, bringing my recompense with me to repay each one for what he has done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and that they may enter the city by the gates. Outside are the dogs and sorcerers and the sexually immoral and murderers and idolaters and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you about these things for the churches. I am the root and the descendant of David the bright morning star, the spirit and the bride say, come. And let the one who hears say, come. And let the one who is thirsty, come. Let the one who desires takes the water of life without price. I warn everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues described in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of the this words of the book of this prophecy, God will take away his share in the tree of life and in the holy city, which are described in this book. He who testifies to these things says, surely I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with you all. Amen. The grass withers and the flowers fade, but this... 
This is the word of the Lord, and it endures for all time eternally. Let us turn to our God in prayer. Father in heaven, we come before you, and you are the light of lights. And so, Lord, as we pray for illumination, we know, Lord, where it must come from. Not from my own imagination or my own uh, understanding. It must come, O Lord, by your Holy Spirit working through your word. So, Lord, help me to be faithful to preach the word this morning. Would you work in us and through us, Lord? And would you indeed glorify yourself that the vision that is laid out for us here in this glorious passage might be made more glorious by your Holy Spirit, impressing it upon our hearts. May we know and delight in this vision of the end. In Jesus' name. Well, <clears throat> one of the fascinating things that I find about this topic of heaven as we've been going through it these last uh, number of weeks is how it sort of is always in the background. Um, it, and, and when crises and difficulties and challenges appear, so this, this doctrine of heaven or this idea of heaven comes out of the woodwork, comes forward. Um, and oftentimes, it's without any real foundation or understanding. This week, the, uh, the famous actress, Reese Witherspoon, was uh, interviewed in the LA Times and asked about her faith. Apparently, didn't know this, she's an Anglican. And the article in the LA Times indicates that she regularly attends church. And she was asked about heaven in this situation. And he, she said, this is she, she was asked about death and heaven and hell and all that kind of stuff. She didn't really comment at all. Uh, I don't think they asked her about hell, but she, she, she said this. She said, I don't have a lot of fear. That's true. There's a time and a purpose and a place, and I don't fear death because I know there's heaven. I know it. So she, she makes a, a statement here about her belief in heaven. But what's interesting is, how does she know that there is heaven? Well, she says she doesn't have a negative view about religion that speaks about heaven or Christianity. And she describes her religious experience as this. She said, I felt this incredible acceptance and that everyone has a gift and that we're all God's children. And your purpose in this world is to find the gifts that God gave you. And she went on to add, she said, I believe deeply that there's a higher power. And I don't know what that is, but I just don't fear dying. Now, to a rational thinking person, her statements seem a bit strange. If you think about this, despite being described in the article as a regular churchgoer since she was a child, she says she doesn't know who or what God is. Her whole life she's gone to church, but she doesn't know who or what God is. Now, 
if you had that kind of doubt, that is often described more less as Christianity and more as agnosticism, right? In other words, ag the agnostic is someone who says, I don't know. I believe that there is a higher power. I believe that there's God, but I just don't know. And oftentimes that would be as far as one would perhaps be willing to go. And it might encourage in other people a reluctance to say anything further. But Miss Witherspoon feels like she has an expression of acceptance from this God. And so she speaks about this. And because of this feeling, she is given something. She, she, she expresses that she has a confident, uh, she has confidence that she has no fear of dying because whatever God is, heaven is to come. Now, before we're too hard on her, perhaps we need to examine our own understanding. Many people who think that they are Christians have little understanding or appreciation or even longing for heaven. In fact, if we were honest, perhaps some would rather be watching one of her films than watching a church service on Sunday. Because at least in those films, it's something that we can relate to, something that we understand and that is tangible to us and relatable. So binge-watching those might be, in, in some senses, for many people, more profitable than, than thinking about heaven. Because the, the, the common notion or the common understanding is that we're up there somewhere floating in the clouds. But that's not what heaven is, as we've been looking over these last few weeks. And indeed, it is entirely dangerous and foolish to base your whole future in eternity on a feeling or an impression. Because we don't need to do that. We're not left in the dark. The Bible actually does tell us what heaven is about. Now, it's true that heaven is far greater than we could ever imagine. As 1 Corinthians 2, 9 to 10 says, What no eye has seen, no ear has heard, nor the heart of man imagined, what God has prepared for those who love him. And this is not a mystery, though, because God has, as it says in verse 10, revealed to us through the Spirit. In other words, our understanding of heaven, our doctrine of heaven, is gathered not from our experience, not from our feelings, but from the very word of God, because God has given us a clear description. Maybe we don't have the ability to fully process it, which is why I believe he uses this apocalyptic imagery, these images where we see the city described as, as both a bride and um, uh, 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 or, or the church described as both a bride and a city. And it seems like all these mixed uh, metaphors and, and this, this, this great picture language, it's, it's sort of overwhelming to us and it's hard for us to relate. But I think that it's meant to convey just the fact that this is symbolic. It, we have a symbolic understanding of the greatness and the wonder of heaven because our earthly minds, even now still affected by the curse, cannot fully appreciate what's to come, but we can have some idea. As Paul says, we can see through a shadow darkly, through a glass darkly. 
we can get sort of an idea. It's like looking at something at night and you kind of get the shape and, and, and the size of things. And there's lots of things that you can discern, but there, it's so much better when you can turn on the light. But for now, we see dimly. We see through a glass darkly. But we will see something more wonderful. But we do have something to look at. And that something to look at is revealed to us in our passage here in Revelation 21 and 22. And we've entitled this mini-series, A View of the End, to help us in the middle. Because it certainly helps us to understand what is to come so that we can anticipate it and we can indeed order our lives according to it. And this is what we're trying to do in this little mini-series that we're, you're doing here on Sunday mornings in Revelation 21 and 22 to give you a, a glimpse of the inheritance that is yours if you are in Christ. And if you're not in Christ, to show you the riches and the wonder and the glory of what it is to be a child of God, to know his mercy and his grace, and to know that your, your future is secure because of his work on the cross on your behalf. We started three weeks ago in these last two chapters, in chapter 21 and 22, and we explored various things about heaven, about the doctrine of heaven. We looked at how heaven is new, but it's a different newness than what we expect. The, the, the heavens and the earth are renewed. They're not annihilated. They are renewed and, and refreshed. And this newness is the foundation of our hope. All sin and sickness will be washed away, wiped away, indeed, destroyed and, and renewed. Uh, and the earth will be renewed in perfection. There will be a certain familiarity with what we see in heaven, but it will be far better than anything else that we could ask or imagine. It will be also a, a heaven that is pure, free from sin, free from the chaos and suffering, from everything that we see, from the violence, from the racism, from, uh, from, from the, the, the destruction of this pestilent plague that we are undergoing. All of that will be free. It's a beautiful place without stain or spot or blemish. And that heaven is also, as we've seen, a place with God. And we're going to see that more this morning as we explore the, the presence of God as the gift that he has given to us. And this is the, the, the vision that the angel gives John in these chapters 21 and 22. Um, we saw in previous weeks, how it began with a visual picture, an exterior of the city, and the picture of the interior of the city. And the city comes down and it's in, a, in the shape of a cube. And this cube is representative of the, of the temple. And we saw that the connection between the imagery here in Revelation and the imagery in uh, the Old Testament, even the, the ornamentation, the the, the, the gems that are on the high priest's robe and are, are the same sort of gems that are described in the Garden of Eden. And, and indeed, these are the gems that are in the walls of Jerusalem. And we see here that this whole sort of uh, emphasis of, of a new Eden coming to play and, and a new Eden where, where we come and, and it's not where we have a temple or a church in the middle of the city, but we have God. In the midst of us, in, in the midst of us, and, and, and the promise of God that He will dwell with His people, and it's it's a wonderful, it's a it's a beautiful um, access that we have here. Now, last week we looked at the first two verses here of Revelation 22, and we saw that the the, the not just the external part of the city or, or a little vision of 
the interior, but the center of the city. And there we started to look at the two main gifts of heaven. Uh, the gift of eternal life, which we looked at last week, is symbolized in the river of life and the tree of life. And this week, we're going to look further, the next three verses, which speak of the other gift of heaven, the gift of God's presence. And together, these combine to define heaven, eternal life, that's the first gift, in God's presence. Now, for some of you listening to this, that seems like a pretty disappointing view of heaven. Because your vision of heaven is obscured by your focus on the things here. You're drawn to the same things that all of us are drawn to. We're drawn to, to movies and entertainment, food and drink, to sex and power. And, and all those th things seem and appear to be more satisfying than eternal life in the presence of God, which is what heaven is as described here. But we're going to look this morning, and I hope by God's grace and through his spirit, that you will understand more of the joy and the wonder of heaven, of being eternally in the presence of the living God, and that you'll have a better vision and understanding of that as we gather together, as we continue to walk together as churches, as we move from this crisis to whatever is to come. We know that ultimately Jesus Christ will come. So our focus this morning is on verses 3 to 5, and we really have only one heading under which we're going to look at them. And that heading is the satisfaction of eternal life in the presence of God. Now, as we said last time, verses 1 and 2 bring us back to that imagery from the Garden of Eden, where the Bible began back in Genesis chapter 1 through to chapter 3, with these images of the tree of life and the river of life. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of, the, of God and of the Lamb through the middle of the street of the city. Also on either side of the river, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Now, all of these images and symbolism, much of the symbolism here in Revelation is reflective of the imagery of the garden. And the garden imagery is something that you can trace biblically, theologically throughout the scriptures. But most significantly, it appears as we see uh, God's promises and his salvation unfold. Or of course, it starts in the Garden of Eden where God made a perfect garden and he appointed all these trees and and there was no weeds or thorns or impediments to, to come together. But then because of sin, God had to cast Adam and Eve out of the garden. And they then go and they start uh, cultivating the land and the garden. But, but this garden imagery is there from the very beginning. And there, there's this, pit, the, the, as God reveals his covenant promises, he promised that, that he will indeed um, raise up a nation of Israel in Abraham. And that Abraham, one of the, the blessings that he will give to Abraham is a land flowing with milk and honey. And this is the promised land where they can go. And if they 
obey God's law, they can live in peace and satisfaction. But of course, they continue in rebellion, and that land is taken away from them. But in that land, as they come together in that land, we have the imagery of the temple and the tabernacle. And we have this whole uh, concept in the Old Testament that, that God is in the midst of his people. And it's interesting, as you look at all those chapters, some of you in your Bible plans have just gotten through those those chapters, which describe for 20 chapters how the tabernacle and the temple are there. And like, what on earth? Why do we have so many chapters on the tabernacle and the temple? Because it was meant to, to give a taste of heaven, a taste of perfection. That's why the, 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 the temple makers and workers had to be filled with the Holy Spirit in order to accomplish their goals. We talk about being filled with the Spirit. We think of preaching, Spirit-filled, Spirit-enabled preaching. But, but those makers of the temple were filled with the Spirit so that they could exercise their art and their artistry to glorify God. And what did they do? What imagery did they put? Well, the temple imagery and the tabernacle imagery is all of the garden. One of the things that stood out to me, just thinking about it, were the pomegranates. One of the things that, that adorned the, uh, the, the temple, Solomon's temple, were these pomegranates of bronze. They were beautiful pomegranates. And they were, why would you have fruit? Like, why is it just that, that uh, you know, they were going through their, their, their design roles here and thought, oh, you know what, let's, let's put fruit up here. No. Fruit was symbolic of the garden. It was symbolic of all of those things. In fact, the, the, the high priest's garments, uh, they were designed to have bells on the bottom, of course, so that you could hear him. So Aaron, when he went into the, the Holy of Holies on the day of Yom Kippur to make atonement for sin, he had these little bells, but they also had little pomegranates, and they were made of scarlet yarn and purple yarn, and, and there's specific instructions in the Bible to make these pomegranates on the bottom of the hem of the priest's garment, because they were meant to evoke this, this garden imagery, that the whole the whole time that we're going through the, the desert wanderings, the, the journeyings as we have yearned for home to be with God, that, that, that there are these little symbols that, that as you look up and say, oh, yes, we're, we're heading towards the garden. We're heading towards paradise to be with God. And, but the difference between, say, that Old Testament concept and, and all those symbols that pointed forward is that here we have in Technicolor, in 3D, in 4K, a picture of what the garden will look like. And it begins with this description there in verse 3. It says, this garden, in this garden, no longer will there be anything accursed. So this is paradise regained, right? No longer will there be anything cursed. You remember that when Adam and Eve in Genesis three sin that God indeed um, uh, curses the snake and he curses the ground and that which was easy for them to produce food and to, to nourish themselves is now filled with thorns and weeds and, and work and labor which was once a delight is now hard and uh, exhausting but the point here is that heaven is what the garden was supposed to be. Heaven is this dwelling, and this is work without pain, work without suffering. And this reversal has happened only 
through the work of another, only through the work of Jesus Christ himself. And it's interesting how Jesus's narrative is, is indeed all throughout the scriptures. In fact, when Adam and Eve fall and into sin, Genesis 3.15 is the first announcement of the good news of the gospel, where God promises that he will send one who will crush the head of the serpent, that is Satan. And that's the first promise that there will be one who will come, whose work will accomplish a reversal of the curse. And it's interesting, uh, as, as, as the Bible progresses, in the New Testament, the very first verse of the New Testament speaks of the book of the genealogy of Jesus Christ. And, and the Greek word that the author chooses there is significant. It is the genesis of Jesus Christ, the new genesis of Jesus Christ. Jesus is the means by which we are going to get back into the garden. And this is what we see Jesus do, is that he, he consistently works hard in order to bring about the reconciliation as possible. Because as we see here, and this is what verse 3 is talking about, the reversal of that curse is through the rule of the throne of God and of the Lamb. That's what verse 3 says. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. Now, have you ever thought about that imagery? That imagery of the throne of God and of the Lamb. Now, he's not referred to here except as the Lamb. He could have been called Jesus Christos, the Messiah. Christos, Christ, Jesus Christ. Christ is not his last name. It's his title, right? He is the one who saves, and his title is Messiah. But here, John prefers the, the language, and the imagery here is of the Lamb. And I think that's a very interesting picture of the leadership and the organization that we see in heaven. Because Jesus Christ comes as a lamb to sacrifice himself. Jesus comes as a lamb in order to pay the price for our sin. He came in humility to bring us into the very presence of God. And again, it's an interesting picture of the lordship or the leadership of God in heaven. The leadership of God in heaven under the throne of God and of the Lamb is significant because the, the picture here is not of a military, law and order, dictatorial, strong end picture of leadership. Earlier in Revelation, in Revelation 5, verse 6, Jesus is described as standing between the throne and the living creatures. And the word between, it's translated in our English uh, translations as between, just more the centrality of Jesus Christ. But the imagery is one of authority and accessibility. And that's, I think, what this image of the throne and of the land is meant to convey to us. It is one of great authority. Here we have the, the ruler and the creator of the universe, a God who will not be mocked, a God who sits in heaven and laughs at the kings of the earth as they they plot in vain, as uh, Psalm 2 puts it. But here we have not just the throne, we also have the lamb. 
And I think that's significant. Uh, Joel Beakey in his commentary points out that God's throne is not protected by a secret police who keep the people under control. God is absolutely in power, but that power is made accessible to us through the Lamb, through his presence. And the picture here is that we will not see the power and the might of God, the throne of God, without also at the same time seeing the Lamb of God. Power and meekness perfectly combined. And what that means is that unlike in the original garden, there will be no rebellion here in heaven. Because, first of all, all sin has been washed away. So what will there be? Well, twanging harps. Well, there probably will be singing and rejoicing. But the imagery here is far more of than just heavenly choirs. The imagery here is an imagery of perfect work and service. Look at what it says there in verse 3. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and of the land will be in it, and his servants will worship him. And his servants will worship him. One of the things I think that we often forget is that we were designed for work. Much of our society is all about escaping work. TGIF, right? Thank God it's Friday. You've got to get out of work, and I, I'm made for leisure. That's sort of how the modern mindset is. I don't want to work. I want to, 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 to relax. But as we, as we know, and as I've spoken to a number of people that are retired, often when we retire, we lose a part of our identity because part of the meaning and part of our purpose is to work. That's what we were created for. Now, work was made more difficult by the fall and their curses and their challenges that come to working in a sinful world. And some of you have experienced some of those things this week as you've had disingenuous bosses or, or uh, coworkers, or if you've experienced the pain of being cheated or uh, something uh, being, some work not being done right or perfectly. There are lots of evidences of that. But in heaven, we will be workers. We will be servants of God. Our ultimate satisfaction is not found in lazily sitting around and eating bonbons by the pool. Our fulfillment is found in work, doing something to bring light, order, and life to the world in which we live, to bring praise and glory to our God. And we need to remember that in the Bible, work is never viewed negatively. It is always presented in the context of the very beginning. We look back to the garden. We see that even before the fall, uh, Adam and Eve were given work. They were to tend to the garden. They were to care for the garden, and they were to name the animals. They were given scientific and uh, various tasks that God gave them in the garden. They were to be useful. They were to be an under uh, a governor of God. They were like a governor general, a representative of God on earth ruling over the animals and the plants in the kingdom that God had given to them. So we need to understand that work as a concept is not evil. And brothers and sisters, this is a very practical thing. I think one of the, the tendencies that we all have 
is to complain about our work and to moan and to gather around the water cooler and to complain about all these things. But when we properly understand that work is a gift from God, that however affected by the fall and by the curse as it is, it is a gift from God, we need to have a different attitude towards it, brothers and sisters. We do not view work as a curse, as something that must be got through to get something else, but we see work as a way that we glorify God. Because the work that we do on, on earth, in some way, is a picture and a shadow of what we will do in heaven. We will be servants to our God. So brothers and sisters, it's really important that on a practical level, that our attitude and our focus is not about complaining about work, but indeed giving thanks for the work that God provides that then enables us to provide for our needs and for our satisfaction, right? I think one of the things that some of us struggle with, I, I personally struggle sometimes on vacation because on vacation, I, I, want, I, I want to spend my vacation time doing work because it seems strange for me to take a break. And it's important to take a break. And indeed, another creation ordinance is Sabbath. And so I'm not saying that that's true, but there's a sense in which doing work is satisfying. It's encouraging. It's, it's indeed uh, something that, that, that provides uh, a sense of satisfaction. But, but here on earth, it's, and because of the curse, it's not as satisfying as it will be in heaven. And so we need to understand this, this properly. Because when we look at work in the context here, there is no rebellion, as we say. Now we need to understand why was there rebellion in the first place when we go back to the Garden of Eden. And the, the reason why there was rebellion was because Satan tempted Adam and Eve to think that God's rule was petty, that God rule was unreasonable. Why shouldn't you, if, if, the, if the fruit looks good and, and tasty, why shouldn't you be able to eat it? Why should God determine that you should not eat of any, uh, you can eat of every tree, but not of this one tree? And as you know, Satan didn't even present it that way. He tricked Eve. He says, he, he engaged her. He says, God said you can't eat of any tree? And she says, oh, no, no, no. He says we can't eat. And, and this is the way that, that Satan twists things. And he twists it and he makes God look like he's mean and petty and everything else. And he incites, he encourages rebellion in Eve's heart. And Eve, instead of not listening, she listens to the serpent and she, she rebels against God in her heart. And she indeed uh, encourages and Adam himself is responsible for rebelling against God there. But... In the new heavens and the new earth, we will not just see the throne of God, but we will also see the Lamb of God. And that changes things. Because could you imagine looking at the Lamb of God? Could you imagine seeing Jesus Christ? And we have, we have a vision of him in the New Testament of, of the holes in his hands where he is nailed to the cross. Could you imagine looking to God at that point and saying, God, you're petty? God, you're unjust? God, you're unfair? No. Because in a vision of the Lamb, everything else is put into perspective. Because when we see the Lamb, we see the beauty of the Lamb's work. We see the fact that God, in His grace, came down and rescued us. Even God, in His power and His omnipotence, reflected by the throne, 
That's not all that is defining of God's character. No, God is not just all-powerful and almighty and omniscient. God is kind. God is gracious. God is compassionate. And, he, and, and in, the, in the persons of the Trinity, Jesus did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking on the form of, uh, taking on human flesh and becoming obedient to God to the point of death, even death on the cross. That's the picture of the land. That's what we'll be constantly seeing. How can we entertain a notion that God is petty when we see the Lamb of God in heaven, when we see the perfected work, when we look into his eyes and we see him face to face? That's what this passage says. It's ultimately glorious. So there's no rebellion because God's work and his plan is clear. It's perfect. Because Christ has gone to the cross to crush sin. He was crushed instead of me. It was for my sin, for my pride, for my selfishness, for my jealousy, for my anger, for my lust. For my sin, Jesus was crushed. Why was Jesus crushed? Well, Isaiah tells us. Isaiah says, he died to reconcile us. It's by his wounds we are healed. There's this little verse in Isaiah 53 that I think is so significant. Because it tells us something of the motivation. He shall see his offspring. Why did Jesus go to the cross? He went to the cross for me. He went to the cross for you. You see, if you believe in Jesus Christ, if you believe in his work, you believe that he went to the cross, that he was nailed to the cross for your sin, for my sin. That's the greatest gift anyone could receive. Nothing on earth compares. There is no gift that exceeds the one, Jesus Christ. Jesus died to reverse this curse. He died to reconcile us. He died so that he might see us, so that we might be in fellowship with him, that he might be glorified, and that we might be edified, that we also might be glorified, that we might rule and reign with him, as Daniel says. He did what Adam and Eve could not do. Adam and Eve listened to Satan when he appealed to their pride. God really say, can you really keep that away from you? How petty, how mean. Don't you know better? He's just trying to keep you from knowing good and evil. He's trying to keep you from being God. He just wants you to be his slave forever and be miserable. You can be wonderful. You can be like him. That's what Satan says. And so Adam and Eve, they both sin and they both pursue this. They reject and rebel against God. And God in his mercy and his justice cast them out of the garden. In his justice, he would be right to strike them down dead. He said, 
when they eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, they will surely die. Well, as soon as they ate of it, they started to die. Their body clocks started ticking, 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 ticking. And we see the, 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 the effects of, of uh, this in, in the generational genealogies in Genesis, where you start seeing these, the numbers of how long they live going down, 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 down. We see that to where we are today, where we struggle to, to try and keep living. But God cast them out as in his justice, and indeed the curse of death was brought in, but his mercy was also displayed because they did not die immediately. There was time for them to repent, time for them to believe in God and to trust in him. And Adam and Eve were saved, and we know this because they believe God's promises. We know this because of the name. Because Eve didn't have a name until after the fall. When Adam named her Eve, the mother of all the living, he believed that she would be the one through whom the seed would come, through whom Jesus would ultimately come. He believed God's plan of redemption. And Eve, when her son Abel was killed, named her son Seth, believing God's promise and trusting in him. And God is a gracious God. It was a mercy for him to cast them out because he is a perfect God and he cannot, he, he cannot uh, condone sin. And so if sin existed in the garden, it would be destroyed. So God pushed them out of the garden and set up the cherubim to guard the entrance. There's a mercy to cast them out. But God doesn't just leave them there. And that's why this vision here at the end is so powerful. Because the vision is that he sent a lamb to die in their place. To pay the blood sacrifice for sin. To, to bear the wrath of God against their sin. So that through his propitiatory work, through his work to turn away the wrath of God, they might be brought into fellowship with him. You see, Jesus, in this picture of the lamb, is beautiful. We see God's power, but we also see his love, his care, his compassion. And it's truly amazing. And this is the picture in heaven. The fullness of God's redemption is revealed in the throne and the lamb together. And we will know it, not through some vague impression of acceptance, but we will know acceptance because we will know that justice has been paid for. We will know that sin has been, has been indeed nailed to the cross and that we bear it no more. Praise the Lord, because we know the work of Jesus Christ. So our understanding and our acceptance can be fully reconciled and understood because this is what the scriptures say, that Jesus came to reconcile us to God by his death on the cross. Praise the Lord. Heaven is real. It's not some fantasy. It's part of God's plan. And it's possible only through the throne, through the power of God, and through the meekness and the grace and the work and the service of the Lamb. And we will see him. And we will see him. We will see this reality of love Enfleshed and entombed, embodied in Jesus Christ, 
And this is what will ultimately satisfy us. This is what will ultimately satiate us because we are fully accepted, not by our own religious goods or by our actions. No, we're reckoned because our actions are, are weak and poor. And even our best craftsmanship has flaws. No, we are brought into relationship with God, not by our own effort, but we are justified by faith in Jesus Christ and in his work on the cross for our sins. Not the people, not those of us who have been religious, who have that elder brother thing, who've attended church all of our life, but perhaps never known him. Right? I've said this many times before, but I think it's true that, that in uh, Matthew 7, in some of the most fearsome uh, statements in the scriptures, where there are these people that come to Jesus in the last day, in the day of judgment, and say, Lord, Lord, uh, we cast out demons in your name. We, we, we perform miracles. We do all these things. And Jesus says to them, get away from me. I never knew you. Jesus is a relational God. He came for sinners like you and me. On the cross, he saw his offspring. He came to make us clean. But we have to confess our sins. We have to confess the bad things that we've done. And the things that we've done to justify ourselves, our own self-righteousness. We need to confess our sins before God. And the assurance of pardon is there. 1 John 1.9 says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to purify us. To purify us from all unrighteousness. No, brothers and sisters, we cannot be Christians if we do not confess our sins. We need forgiveness from sins. And it's not granted by a priest. It's not granted by a man or a woman. It's not granted by a series of tasks that you do. It is granted in one place only, through Jesus Christ. There is no other name given under heaven by which we must be saved. So our path is clear. If heaven is eternally in the presence of God and of the Lamb, we need to know this God. We need to know this Lamb. And we can know this God and know this Lamb through the Scriptures. And we can come to know Him and come to trust Him by asking Him to work in our lives. This morning, if you are listening to this broadcast and you have a desire to know more about him. You have an opportunity to receive the grace of God. Don't harden your heart. Don't switch the mental channel. Tune in, focus, look. Turn your attention towards that which is imperishable. Turn your attention to that which is more important than anything else in all of your life and existence. Forget about COVID. Forget about what's happening in the world. The most important thing that you need to know this morning is the God who made you. And you need to know your sin because as we see here, even in this chapter, not everyone goes to heaven. No matter what sentiment you may have or what feeling you may have, not everyone goes to heaven because God has revealed in his word 
that the idolaters, those who put other gods in the place of God, they do not make it into heaven. So if you have a notion or desire, look to Jesus. Look to the Lamb of God. Cry out to him. Ask him for mercy and for forgiveness. Ask him to know him, to trust him, to walk with him. The picture here is it's truly amazing. The presence of God, if you know your Bibles, is always mediated throughout history. In the New Testament, it's mediated through Jesus Christ. But in the Old Testament, Moses couldn't see God's face. Jesus says in the Sermon on the Mount that only the pure in heart will see God. But Christian, through the work of Jesus Christ, that's what will be. And this is a picture here in heaven of the pure in heart seeing God. We will see him as he is. 1 John 3 says, because of what he does. But we know that when he appears, we shall be like him, because we will see him as he is. And it's that vision that is meant to motivate us, because in 1 John 3, verse 3, the next verse, it says, this is not just pie in the sky, it says, and everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. And that's instruction for us now. We don't just get cleaned up at the end and go to heaven. No. In fact, cleaning ourselves up isn't what gets us into heaven. What gets us into heaven is the work of Jesus Christ. But if Jesus Christ has really truly worked in your heart, it will be known. The Bible says, by your fruits will you be known. If you want to go to heaven, then we need to see that there is fruit. And as John says, everyone who thus hopes in him that is, if you're trusting in Jesus Christ, if you, if you want to, to be in heaven with Jesus Christ, then you have a concern for purity. Everyone who thus hopes in him purifies himself as he is pure. So again, you know, like this kind of lazy view of heaven that people have out there. It's like, oh, yeah, you know, it's a nice place out there. Everybody goes there when they die. That's not what the scriptures describe. The scriptures describe a place that was bought at an enormous cost. And that the only entrance is through the work of Jesus Christ. And that if you truly love and serve him, that doesn't just begin in heaven. It starts here on earth. It starts in the work of sanctification. One of the famous illustrations, I think, that Martin Luther used, and recently we celebrated uh, D-Day on June 6th, when the uh, American the Canadians, the British, and uh, the, the coalition, the Allies' forces landed in Normandy. And that was a definitive victory. After the landing in Normandy, it was almost without doubt that the Allies would triumph. There was a definitive victory. But it took still a year to progress and to come to the heart of Germany to end and to, to get to uh, victory in Europe Day, to get to the, the point where there was total victory that's over there. And what I would say to you, believer, is if you believe in Jesus Christ, yes, Jesus has died for your sins. 
Yes, you have been sanctified by his work, but sanctification is something that is meant to be a cooperative thing, right? Salvation is only God, but sanctification, becoming holy, is a cooperative effort. And so as you come into relationship with him, it changes your orientation. It changes what you live for, right? A view of the end changes everything in the middle. Because if you are envisioning being with God eternally, then you cannot live with sin in the here and now. And so it changes your focus and your attention and your resources and everything else to indeed purify your heart, to purify yourself as he is pure. Anyone say, well, I can't purify myself. Well, actually, you can. In God's grace, through salvation, you can say no to sin in a way that you didn't before. Because if you're a Christian, you are not bound by sin in the same way. We've died to sin and become alive to Jesus Christ. And we can obey his commands. So we're not powerless to deal with sin. And in fact, if you're a Christian, it should be evident. It should be lived out. You should be more and more like Jesus Christ, more compassionate, more kind, more patient. You should have the fruit of the Spirit. Now, we're not perfect, and we fall short in many ways. But Christianity means something. It has a meaning. It has a purpose. It has a telos. It has an end. And it has a purpose now. And it affects and helps us now. But we need to see the vision of the end to help us here in the middle. Because it's not just going to be our eyeballs that are taking in Jesus and we just stand there and look, right? You can do that for a while. I remember going to Niagara Falls for the first time in a number of years. And I just stood there and looked and like the thunder and everything else. And it was great. But then after a couple of minutes, it's like, ah, okay, I can go, right? It's a nice thing, it's, it's beautiful in the moment, but it passes. But the presence of God is something that is so much greater and so much more satisfying. All of your desires, all your dreams, all your longings, all your aspects, all of those things will be perfectly and utterly fulfilled and satisfied by being in the presence of God. It enraptures us. We might be drawn into a movie, right? I'm a bit of an emotional guy. Sometimes I cry in movies. I get into the thing. And if it's too tense, I got to go out of the room, right? We get drawn into those things. But then they're gone. And the sequel's never better. Or rarely. But here we have something that's, that never ends. We're drawn in. We don't want to be anywhere else. We just want to be in the presence of Jesus Christ. He is ultimately satisfying. No man or woman can satisfy you like Jesus Christ. No job, no, 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 no career, no child, no, no, no house, no whatever. Nothing can satisfy you eternally and more wonderfully than being in the presence of your Savior. All your dreams, all your aspirations, everything comes to this, this, this wonderful conclusion. You see, paradise is not what uh, we see in, 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 in Islam, for example, which is sensual fulfillment. 
fulfillment of, of the body and, 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 and you know, every, every aspect of that. No, it's, it's being in the presence of God. Paradise is being in the presence of God. It's not deification. We don't become gods. It's not the annihilation of our souls as we see in Eastern religions. No, paradise is being in the presence of God. For me to live is Christ, meaning that here on earth we have some blessing of Jesus Christ and knowing his, his blessing and knowing his encouragement, knowing some of the, the wonder of Jesus Christ even in the midst of our suffering. But for me to live is Christ, but then Paul says, but to die is gain. Why is it gain? Because I have all of Christ, unfettered, face-to-face fellowship with him. No more sin, no more evil, no more wickedness. Our every sufficiency, our every desire and delight is satisfied in his presence. I bought my son a Lego set not too long ago. And I got to tell you, his eyes were as wide as saucers when he saw that Lego set. Oh my goodness. And we broke it out together. And for two hours, we labored. And I got to tell you, these things are more complicated than they look. We labored to build this beautiful command truck out of, out of Lego with a motorcycle out of the back and a satellite dish on the top. And he was in heaven. But then we did it. <laughs> and what? Well, He's broken it apart and he's added some other things onto it, but he doesn't play with it on the same level as he did that first day because it provided some satisfaction. That's what the Bible says. It says there is some satisfaction in sin or in the pleasures of this world, but but it's fleeting. It's something that, that dissipates. It's something that doesn't continue. But... But this is a picture, it's a vision of the eternal here. A vision of perfect relationship where we belong to God. You see, it it, it uses this imagery here. It says, they will see his face and his name will be on their foreheads. It's not about, you know, a literal tattoo, 777, and then the bad guys have 666 across the top, the mark of the beast, right? That's and, and people go on, you know, like, oh, don't get a barcode or don't, you know, don't get, you know, a library card because it's, you know, that's not at all what's envisioned and in view here at all, right? What is the idea of this? This is, again, imagery. This is the imagery of the temple. It was the priest that had the names, had the names of Israel inscribed into his breastplate. It had the name of God on his frontlets, and, and the Israelites put them around everything. It was meaning that they belonged to God that they were in his presence and they were delighted here. It's a wonderful picture of God's grace and his ownership here of us. And it's reflected in the glory, the the, the beautiful light that is reflected here in verse 5, and night will be no more. They will need no light or lamp or sun, for the Lord God will be their light, and they will reign forever and ever. And this is a repeat of what we saw back in chapter 21, verses uh, 23 and 24. The city has no need of sun or moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it light, and its lamp is the lamp. This light is elemental. 
Spurgeon in his commentary on this says that this light can be understood in three ways. I think he's got some, uh, some insight here. He says, first of all, this light is the cause of joy. This is a joyous city for light in the scripture is symbolic of joy. Just as darkness is symbolic of sorrow. I don't know if you've ever driven through a tunnel before. Uh, there's a tunnel that we used to, when we used to go down to South Carolina, there's this tunnel through this, this mountain. It was forever, driving, driving. It's just gray and it's awful. And then you see the light. Light first starts as a pinprick and then it gets brighter and brighter and brighter. And all of a sudden, boom, you're into the, in, into the sunlight. And it's like, oh, thank goodness. It was fun going into the tunnel, but no, I, I want to be out in light. Right? Light is symbolic of joy. And our joy is that Jesus chose us. Spurgeon says, Jesus chose us. Jesus bought us. Jesus washed us. Jesus robed us. Jesus kept us. Jesus glorified us. And here we are entirely through his work alone. That's his light. And he says, secondly, this light imparts beauty. I love that, that hymn we've sung uh, the last couple of weeks. It's a little hard to sing it with uh, uh, the, the, the guitar but it's when the sands of time are sinking and it, and it talks about uh, the lamb is all the glory in Emmanuel's land. All that is beautiful in heaven flows out of the representative of the work of Jesus Christ. All of it flows. This light is a picture. And third, this light is also knowledge. There's no need for light in heaven because Christ is the source of everything that believers need and all that they must know. Second Corinthians says this in chapter four, verse six, for God who said, let light shine out of darkness has shone in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. All we will need is to see him face to face. And that is a beautiful thing when you think about it. In glory, this will, be, this will mean that our knowledge and our understanding of all of these things will be more glorious and more perfect than anyone else. All of a sudden, whoever you are, in the first few minutes that you're in heaven, you'll know more than G.K. Beale, who's commenting on Revelation, who's made it his life's work. You will be a better scholar than Wayne Grudem or Don Carson, or better preacher than John Piper, because you will see it for yourself. You will instantly know the Bible and the truth better than R.C. Sproul, because you will be experiencing it. You will be in his presence, and you will know it. You see, that the picture language here is so limited. It cannot begin to capture something of what it will be like to be there. To have perfect knowledge, to have perfect satisfaction, to have perfect fellowship with our God. It's unbelievable. Before COVID and everything else, I used to take my kids out on Canada Day to watch fireworks. Now, if you've ever seen fireworks in person, you know that it's almost impossible to capture the experience on film. I often think about all those people that go out there and they've got their cameras up in the sky and they're, they're filming the fireworks. But 
you know, you watch it later on YouTube. I don't know anyone who, who, who's watched those things to the, the, to the completion of them. Because, you know, they look okay, I guess. You know, but it's nothing to be in there and hearing the boom, 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 and seeing the Roman candles and, you know, and everything else and the cacophony and then the delight of the crowd. And there's just something about being there. There's something about being in the presence of it that just doesn't capture, it doesn't transfer to imagery. It just, it's not all that exciting. It's just, you know, it's lights and like the, 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 the film or, or the digital media or whatever it is can't capture it in all of its color and there's just something to it when you're there and it's there and you see the light in the children's faces. It's the whole picture that gives you the enjoyment of being at a fireworks show. And that's something of what we see when we see it here in the scriptures. We, we see the scriptures and we see this description and it's, 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 it's like watching a video of a firework display. Yeah, that looks pretty cool. That looks pretty amazing, but it's nothing like being there. It's nothing like being in the presence of Jesus Christ, seeing him face to face, seeing him call you by name, Christopher, or whatever your name is. You are my son. You're my child. I love you. I've always loved you. Every day of your life, I've loved you. And I went to the cross for you. How could you think about anything else? You see, the pictures here are to give us a view of the end, to help us in the middle. For now we have but faith. And faith itself is a gift from God. But faith will turn into sight in heaven. No longer will we see God through a glass darkly, as Paul puts it. No longer will we only see his back parts, as Moses did. No longer will we only see the hem of his garment, as Isaiah did. No, we will see him face to face. And we will be like him, and he will know us. And this picture of his name being on our foreheads, this is not only a picture of our preciousness to us, to him. But as Philip Hughes said, it means that in the multitude of the redeemed who are there populating the holy city, there will be none who are unknown, none who are unloved, none whose identity is lost in the crowd, and none who miss seeing him face to face. You might feel that life has passed you by. You might feel that you are worthless. And you would be wrong. Because even if you are not worthwhile to another human being, you are precious in God's sight. And in heaven, your name, his name will be on your forehead and he will know you and he will address you and he will love you perfectly in a way that you could never imagine, in a way that no other person could. You see, Christianity is an identity that is received. It's an identity that comes from God. It's not something you need to construct through your own kinks or your own sexual identity. And that's, that's just a, a, a tiny part of who you are, your sexuality. No, the identity that's given to you, that's gifted to you in God, is something that supersedes anything 
It supersedes your culture. It supersedes your color. It supersedes your education. It supersedes your family background. It supersedes your family heritage. It supersedes everything, your education. That identity comes and everything else, whether you're black, white, brown, Asian, rich, poor, all of that becomes secondary to the fact that you are a child of God in Christ Jesus. And that's the promise of his work. That's the promise that helps us. That's the, that's the, the identity that informs all other identities that we may have here on this earth. That helps us with how we move forward because it is an identity that has been given to us, that we are the children of God, that he has made us like him and that we will see him face to face. But that is only available through the lamb. It is only available, reconciliation is only available through Jesus Christ. No other name given under heaven, right? I and I alone am the way, the truth, and the life, Jesus says. No one comes to the Father except through the church, no. except through Jesus Christ, except through him. You need to know him. You need to know his grace and his mercy. You need to believe that he died on the cross for you. And as a result, you will repent and believe and trust. And trust for a long time will be by faith. But one day, one day, it will be by sight. We have this vision to help us. 2 Corinthians 4.16 says this, So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing us for an eternal weight of glory that is beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. No one has ever seen the face of God and lived. But you will, if you believe in him, if you trust in him. And it will transform your earthly identity, your earthly trajectory, your earthly lives, fundamentally. Look to Jesus Christ and live eternally. Amen. Our final hymn is for that path that we walk in the middle because we sometimes lose sight. And we think, will we ever get to heaven? Will we get through this? Sometimes we don't think we will. And if it was up to us, we wouldn't. But this last hymn is meant to encourage us because the message of this hymn is a very simple one. He will hold me fast. It is Christ that brings us to that river of life. It is Christ that brings us to that tree of life. 
to the throne where he is the lamb, both in the midst of the throne in all of his power and authority and before the throne in all of his accessibility. It's Jesus that holds us fast. In our hymn of response, let's sing to this Jesus Christ. <laughs>